Hey, this is Katie, and welcome to episode 13 of Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. In this episode, we talk with Army veteran Clayton Hinchman, the CEO of Ignite and the chairman of Black Patch Distilling Company. We talk about how a combat injury unexpectedly put him on the path to entrepreneurship, how a competitive approach to business has led to fulfillment and success, and the fact that risk is always going to exist in business and in life, and it's not a reason to not get started or to jump in 100%. We also talk about starting a whiskey distillery with your entire family on the side. This podcast is powered by the Veteran Known Collective, a private community for veteran entrepreneurs. For show notes, go to veteranownedcollective.com backslash podcast. Let's get started. Joining me today from Huntsville, Alabama is Clayton Hinchman. Clay is an Army veteran and a serial entrepreneur. He is currently the CEO of Ignite and the chairman of Black Patch Distilling. Clayton, welcome to Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited about our conversation today. I know you've started and run several businesses since getting out of the military, and I want to hear more about how you accomplished that, specifically how you got started and how you moved uh, from idea to execution multiple times, because that's that's one of the hardest things to do, right, is to get started. And I know our audience is interested in hearing from someone who has done that successfully. Yeah, I think, you know, so I, I was wounded May 10, 2008, unfortunately lost my leg. So I was an infantry officer. I'm an airborne ranger. I, I really loved soldiering. I love the job. I I was in New York City uh, the Saturday before the towers came down. Uh, I was a freshman at West Point. I thought that's what I would be doing my entire life. I, I really did. Unfortunately, I stepped on an IED and lost my leg. And while I was recovering, I met a gentleman who was a former Marine, Vietnam, and he had been the president of Turner Construction International. And myself and my RTO, H.T. Uh, Tran, Sergeant Tran, he lost his eye when I lost my leg. We started going to this entrepreneur class that he had at uh, the Military Advanced Training Center, which was the amputee center at Old Walter Reed in 2008, um, 2009. And he, I, I've told him before that <laughs> Bob Nielsen broke me um, because he put this bug in my head that you could be an entrepreneur, you could start your own thing. Uh, if you worked hard and had a plan, you could figure anything out. And so Tran is now on his second business. He sold a construction business, San Jose, California. He's opening up like a like a foodie type deal in Austin, Texas now. Um, and then I like like you mentioned some of the companies that I've started, but it was it was really about Bob being a mentor and and changing the way that I looked at myself as an individual from thinking my career would be military, you know, breaking my heart, losing my leg, and then you know, really him going, it, what, we never asked ourselves, like, why do something? It was, why the hell not? It was just like, why not try it? And if you fail, you fail, but at least you gave it your all. And when you're a 90-year-old fat man, you, you live without regret because at least you gave, it, you gave it a try. So that's, <laughs> Bob broke me as an entrepreneur uh, when I was 25, 26 years old. Uh, so tell, tell me a little bit about the first business you started. So he puts this bug in your ear. You start to think this is something that's possible. And then, like we've talked about so much, moving from that idea to actually doing it. What did that look like for you? Yeah. So, so my first job when I got out of the Army, I actually worked at the Joint IED Defeat Organization, JIDO, in DC. And I don't know how I got the job because literally in my interview, I was a contractor. I said, uh, I've only found one IED and I just stepped on the damn thing. Like, I don't know how I got the job. But I ended up waiting for my clearance. Uh, TSSCI stuff to go through. And I worked for the budget chief. Um, and he was a great mentor 
he was a fair man. He was mean to everybody, but he was fair. And I learned the ins and outs of really what it took to price things accordingly, the procurement schedules and things like that. And so I had this idea of, okay, you know, I, I can do this. And really it was about some of the, I don't want to say fraud, waste and abuse, but it was bad ideas that we were funding because we were so terrified of IEDs at the time. We weren't at them as a close ambush. And I just thought we were wasting money and that I could do a better job at pure, pure arrogance at a better cost and better performance. But um, I was trying to finish my master's degree at night at Georgetown. So I knew I was going to start a company, but I kind of had a house and had a, had a wife and had to make some money. So I ended up, I ended up working for the military officer association and I lobbied on Capitol Hill for certain members and family members for um, the post 9-11 GI bill, folk rehab and, and some of the VA benefits finished my master's at night in policy. And then uh, I had a full-time job, but I started to look at opportunities where I could, um, you know, I guess kind of penetrate that market and learned of a deal that the USO was doing to upgrade its IT infrastructure throughout the world. Um, They were our first client. And at the same time, I was able to personally consult on a Booz Allen Hamilton was the prime, and I was a sub on a DARPA effort for small and micro UAVs. And I was more the military concept of operations, but um, landed those two contracts and left DC, bought a house online, moved to Huntsville, Alabama, of the of the of the uh, the market and the cost of living and what you know. The Army and NASA spend so much out of Redstone. A lot of people don't know that, but I really thought that we could you know, drive into the market and kind of build a presence. And we were, we were lucky enough to do that. Um, we, you know, my biggest thing in my type of business is federal contracting is building past performance. You want to generate revenue. You, you know, you have to make money and all of those things, but in our market, you really have to have past performance to prove that you can do the work. Um, and so I was able to build a little past performance and then I just, I just ran with it. And that's, that's mm-hmm. how we got so did you actually get your first clients before you officially started the business? No, I had started the business. Um, I'm sentimental. May, May 10th, which is my leg birthday. Um, <laughs> but I kept, I kept working. Like I just started the company, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was designing a website at night because you, you know, these drag and drop website builders are easy. Yeah. Um, and so we just, I started working on it at night and I actually took a leave of absence. I actually tried to quit my job at MOA, the Military Officer Association. Mm-hmm. And my boss was retired Air Force. And he said, hey, look, if it doesn't work out, just take leave without pay, take LWAP. And I said, look, I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, I'm going all in now. I've got mm-hmm. some clients lined up. I'm going all in. And he was like, well, you know, play it safe, this and that. And I just didn't. I just dove into it. And um I, I officially quit, I think, January of 2012, maybe. Okay. But I, I, had already been, I had already been on leave without pay for, I think, 60 days. Yeah. And I, uh, I had those two, those two clients that we were already supporting. So, so what gave you the conviction to make what many could perceive as like a risky decision like that, right? Like you have a couple of clients, but you know that if you quit... You're going to have to get more clients and you're going to have to make it turn this into something that's sustainable, right? Like, I mean, what gave you, what gave you that conviction? Um, you know, 
I really didn't like my job at MOA because I thought that we could do more. And there was, in, in my opinion, in a lot of places I've been, people are really content with making a salary. And it's not about the salary to me. Um, look, you have to make money and you have to manage an income statement. I, you know, you can do all those things. Right. It's about competing. Um, you know, I was an athlete growing up. Um, I, I played rugby at West Point and, and, you know, enjoyed that. And then after I lost my leg, I guess, I mean, I still work out, but it, it's not the same type of competition, I guess. And so I found a new purpose in life and it was through competing in, in my business area. And so, you know, I, I, I don't honestly know, but it was just something that I, I knew I had to do. And I go back to my grandfather was a World War II uh, vet and he served as a machinist mate on the USS Cleveland. And then he was a school teacher for 35 years. And when he was older, he wouldn't go back to the reunions for whatever reasons for his old, his old cruiser. Uh, it was a cruiser style ship. And it, it bothered me because I could see that regret in my grandfather's eyes. And this is a man that raised me and all these things. And, and um, I just didn't want to have that look. I, I just, that, the thing that scared me more about starting my own business wasn't failing. I mean, I, that's going to happen. It was about not even trying. And, you know, if other people can do it, you can do it. And, and that's, that's something I think that so many people um, forget about is when you write your business plan, you're looking at financials, you're looking at everything, you're mitigating risk down to the minutia, right? But there's always going to be risk. Mm -hmm. Is that something that your stomach can handle or is it something that you can't? And I hate to say it, but I've unfortunately met business owners who, you know, they, they really, I don't know, it's, they really want to be successful, but the stress, it really gets to them. And I say that because when I speak to groups, I tell them, you know, hunting Al-Qaeda in Iraq was easy compared to being a small business owner. The stress level, if I mess up payroll, if I mess up 401ks, if I screw up my job, mm -hmm. I'm affecting people's family. And in combat, you're trained to do, I mean, you know, you know what you're supposed to do, right? And I mean, you, you were an officer, you know, you're, you, you have training mm -hmm. in the business world. Nobody tells you what you're supposed to be doing, right? Nobody makes you get up and, and go, you have to do these 10 things today. You just go, all right, let's just keep grinding away until mm -hmm. you get to some level of success. And um, I guess I just really thrived on that mentality of, I have the ability to make my own way and I don't like being told what to do. Um, <laughs> you know, and so then I just, I guess I just ran with it up from there. Yeah. I think, I think the problem is that what's presented today with all this press around entrepreneurship and the big sexy, like shark tank style thing is they show you what it's supposed to look like, which we all know is not real anyways. It's just like a moment in time, a perfectly choreographed moment in time. And then no one talks about the how, how you actually get there. Right. Like that's, that's the dirty little secret. It doesn't just happen when you start a business. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah, it's, that's the dirty work. I mean, it's um, one, of my, one of my guys here at Ignite, my defense contracting business, is kind of new to his business development role. And I told him, I said, business development sales is it's a pure effort game. It's pure effort. And mm -hmm. I said, but yesterday we were going through some of the statements of work of some of these large opportunities. And I said, this is the grind. This is the stuff that people don't like, I can go to lunch and be friendly, 
and, and have a great time. And me and Katie can hit it off and all that stuff. But when we look at what the customer is actually going to evaluate us on, mm-hmm. that's hours of intense uh, evaluation. Can you actually do this? Can you write to it? Can you can you do this type of software modeling that you know um, the, the aviation missile center is looking for? You know that's you know, and if you can't, hey Clay, we need to hire somebody. We need to hire a consultant, and then you have to look at your finances. But mm-hmm. you know that's the day in and day out stuff. And and I always tell people that you know you can always tell an entrepreneur who's going to fail. You can't tell who's going to be successful, right? Mm-hmm. But you can always tell somebody who's going to fail if they start talking to you about all the stuff they're going to buy, you know, before they built their business. And if if people are around me like that, I just tell them, don't waste my time because mm-hmm. you're, you're not focused on competing. And if you're not focused on competing and, and winning, then your competition is focused on kicking your butt and you've already lost. You're already behind the power curve. So mm-hmm. talk about your Ferrari and jet. Cool. Go stand in the corner and I'm going to stay here with the people that I know are going to work hard and, and try to solve the problem. And then we'll, then we'll party later, but we got to, we got to mm-hmm. win. Yeah. I, I love the idea of looking at a business as a competition. I, I find that in my, you know, I have a small consulting business. I find that as well, like figuring out how to do something, going after the business, winning the business. But then, like you said, you still have to put up a strong performance, right? Because your past performance is that is a sales tool. And that is like the heartbeat of your business, being able to point to what you've done yep. uh, so that you can continue to win business and get repeat business. Um, I, I just, I haven't really thought of it in that terms, but I guess like a lot of folks that join the military are competitive risk takers at heart. So I think that's, there's, there's a lot of interesting parallels between military service and entrepreneurship. And that's, that's another yeah. one that I hadn't really you articulated. Know, you know, it's really funny because you know, I, I went to West Point and I, I told a buddy of mine one time that it, it was an absolute gut check because, hey, I'm the captain of the football team and I did well in school. And then I got there and there were women and men who just destroyed every like they were straight A students and they ran, you know, 10 minute, two miles. And I'm like, who are they're robots? They're machines. <laughs> are you real people? <laughs> yeah, they're not real. You know, and then but then I got into the the real army because West Point's not the real military, but mm-hmm. you get the real military. And you realize it's the same type of people. You have alpha females and alpha males that are just crushing whatever they're doing. And mm-hmm. the funny part is, is a lot of a lot of military leaders that I've seen are entrepreneurial, but they don't mm-hmm. they don't realize it because it's such a bureaucracy, mm-hmm. right? So you have to operate in a bureaucracy, but still, you know, there's wiggle room to think for yourself and make your own decisions and solve mm-hmm. problems. But there's still a process because the military is a large organization. But and that happens with all large organizations. But no, I, you know, it, it's a we're all competitive by nature. I, mm-hmm. I think. and then I think a lot of people lose that when they get out of the military. They don't know where that next competition comes from, so they find they kind of lose a purpose. And I, mm-hmm. I was lucky. Like I was lucky. I, you know, found some mentors and kind of pointed me in the right direction. And and I found a new. I found a new meaning, you know, so I'm, I'm really grateful to those people that helped me through my transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, finding other people that can help push you along, like whether it's a mentor or other people who are also interested in entrepreneurship. Like I didn't even really know what a startup was before I went to business school. And then the people that I've met, like you just, you start coming around in these circles and you understand that other people who are doing this, like stuff, like, like people like you who are just 
putting one foot in front of the other, starting a business, figuring it out, being successful and, and repeating that. But if you're not around those kinds of people, I, I guess it, you just don't know what's possible, right? So yeah. you're the sum of the people you spend your time with. If you're not spending time with other people who are competitively seeking success in business, then I, I think it's going to be hard to, to push yourself. No, That's the I way agree. I look at it. Um, so I know that you started more than one business. I do want to ask you specifically about, about Black Patch Distilling. Can you tell us a little bit about that business and how it got started and what's going on with it? Yeah. So Ignite is my federal contracting business. We have about 180 employees right now. Um, Black Patch was really a, a passion of me and my dad. He's actually my stepdad. Uh, married my mom when I was about eight, I think. and then But he raised me. And so he's my dad. And um, Gary Cooper is his name. And so my dad is a, a polymer chemist, high-end chemist. Uh, he's absolutely <laughs> embarrassed of me and my brother. My brother's a federal officer, and neither one of us have any technical science skills. Um, but my dad's hardcore chemist, and it was something that we talked about for a long time. He bought mm-hmm. me my first beer-making kit when I was 16. Then he started making wine. Then he started making whiskey. And he's been making whiskey for probably... I guess seven, 16, 17 years. And uh, four years ago, I said, you know, when I sold, I sold my first business actually to Ignite and then I, I bought the company back. Um, so when I sold my first business, I said, hey, look, we've talked about this a long time. We've had the business plan. We've done all the research. Let's mm-hmm. just do it. And my dad was 58, 59 at the time. And he finally just said, all right, hell, I'll take an early retirement. And so Never left Texas. I'm originally from south of Houston area uh, on the Gulf Coast. And my dad's 60 years old. My mother's 70. Mm-hmm. They left Texas. And now they live in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, <laughs> they're kind of close. But it, it was something that we had just always talked about. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just told my dad, I said, hey, let, let, let's just friggin' do it. And um, Black Patch, the name comes from uh, the special operations task force I was on uh, was task force one, uh, one, seven, 17. And all we did was chase Al Qaeda around in 2008, 2009 in Iraq. And we're, we're just not that creative. We couldn't come up with a better name, but the task force <laughs> wore sterile uniforms, no name, no rank. And all we wore was an American flag and a black. And that's, we, we were, we were trying to be simplistic. You know, we want to be the working man's whiskey. Um, mm-hmm. Even though we're a craft distillery, our prices are actually still pretty low compared to other uh, crafts. Uh, and I mean, like whiskey is like 34 bucks um, and a lot of crafts will charge a bigger price. But mm-hmm. we wanted to get into the volume game. Um, so so that's how we ended up starting it. And uh, it's absolutely terrifying because there's a lot of upfront costs. Um, mm-hmm. Now with the you know COVID-19 uh, stuff going on. Our sales have kind of dipped. Um, we had a ton of tastings throughout Alabama and the South that we were that we had set up. And actually, when the governor closed the state down, was the start of like a two month tasting extravaganza around the state. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hurt us, but uh, but it's a passion, you know. So it's just it's been um it's been good. The one thing I'll say is when I wrote the business plan, did all the financials, I told my dad, I said, "You're the distiller." I'm the chairman. I'm in charge of all marketing, sales, propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is the president. She does all the ABC and federal, state and federal reporting. And mm-hmm. my sister's like the manager of, of the shop. So uh, we had very specific guidelines. So people that are thinking of going to business with their family, first of all, 
it can be very difficult. Um, but if you agree to specific roles and responsibilities, it makes it easier. And more importantly was my dad had said years ago that a distillery was going to be a hobby for him. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, if you want to go into business with me, it's not a hobby. I said, you have to make money and your hobby will very quickly go broke if you are not focused on generating income. And yeah. your, your income statement, as you know, is the heartbeat of your business. And a lot of people, when they start companies, they they don't really understand that. Um, and I think that my family is still kind of learning, but um, you know, you have to generate cash flow, cash in, cash out, cash in, cash out, um, you know, to be a successful business because you know, I'm, I'm not gonna keep investing. No one would keep investing with something that's just losing yeah. tons of money with no, you know, with no structure and no plan going forward. Right. Sometimes company companies show a loss for a strategic reason. I get that. Right. But, but if, you know, ours was, uh, you know, getting to understand, you know, I'm, I'm not starting a company as a hobby. I'm, we're here to make money, but it's it's something the distillery is something we love and we're passionate about. But we, mm-hmm. we still got to make. Right. Well, I mean, ha- to your point about, you know, sometimes you take loss for strategic reasons. Like how what are your thoughts on how long, you know, someone should continue pursuing a business that maybe isn't turning a large profit? Um I talk to a lot of folks who are still trying to figure things out and there isn't a large profit right now. It doesn't mean there's nothing there, but I mean, everyone's personal financial uh, situation is different. But when you look at things in black and white from like a cash flow perspective, something's not cash flowing. Like, how do you think about that decision to continue to invest your time and your money? You know, I've always, uh, I, I use the term backstop. Um, when I started my first company, I, I gave myself two years. Um, if I wasn't generating enough revenue, then I would probably look for a job. Uh, mm-hmm. I, so when I moved to Huntsville, I had a two-year window and I had, I had a backstop. If something's not, if I'm not at this level and it's different for everybody, if I'm not at this level or almost there, then I really need to adjust what I'm doing. Uh, the yeah. same with the distillery. I mean, our production is increasing and so are our sales. Um, but it, you know, whiskey, wine, beer, those are, you know, the spirits industry is, you know, I really set it up for my daughters. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I know that in 10 years, it's still probably going to be where it is. Uh, you know, it's something that we love. We want to make sure that our cash covers everything, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to be a billionaire from starting a craft. Still, like, <laughs> I, I know that, um, you know, so I think, but it's, but still, but still you have to evaluate it as a cash basis. You have to, like you were talking about, you have to look at it and go, okay, here's my backstop. If, if we're not generating enough and we're going to continue to go into debt, um, mm-hmm. then we need to just make a difficult decision. And, and, right, you know, I see this with a lot of small business owners. When I sold my first company, my wife said something to me that I didn't think she looked at it. She, she said, well, this is your baby. You created this. And I, you know, I had like 55 employees and I said, and I said, businesses live and die. That's the nature of business. And, you know, I was able to set my daughters up for success by selling and then going to work for another firm. Um, I never looked at it as like an emotional high. And I, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, I think some of the mentors I've had have really helped me. And I've made, I have made emotional decisions and kept people on payroll that really didn't add value. Um, 
uh, and I'll never do that again. And, and you just you just can't do that if if you truly love your entity, you have to look at it through a data driven decision of what's best for the business, right? And and that's really hard for small business owners and leaders to do because they're they get their emotions tied up into it. And, mm-hmm. and like I said, I I've just tried to learn as much as I can from people who come before us and go, okay, I and look, I've had to make really difficult decisions and and I hate it because you're affecting people's lives. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is what's the best decision for the business? Yeah. And that's where I'm gonna try to make the best the decision. So you know what's hard though is like I, I would argue that the emotions piece of it with the small business is part of what makes them successful. Like they probably work harder and they're more passionate. Um, but then it also affects the decisions. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've struggled with a lot of that. Like, well, can you tell me a little bit more about, um, you said that you made a couple of decisions to keep folks on the payroll. Was that because you had a personal relationship with them or? No, I, uh, years ago we had a guy who was a fantastic network engineer. Man, I, I, not only was he a good working dude, he was just a good dude. And I just mm-hmm. really enjoyed, I really enjoyed just being around him um, yeah. just in general. And the customer was kind of a, a pain and didn't want him on site anymore because he basically kept telling the customer he wasn't rude because that was just wasn't the guy's nature, but he kept mm-hmm. pointing out where there these mistakes were made so he could, so he could fix the network problem. Right. Yeah. And the customer kept getting offended because, oh, well, this guy knows, knows more than me. Well, yeah, that's why you hired us to help you <laughs> run it. Um, so anyways, they, they cut his funding, and but I kept him on staff. And what we used him for was to help create a, a side network to train like the 30 other people we had working out in the field on this program. And, you know, he did great work. But eventually, about nine months later, I had to let him go. And I can't tell you the, I couldn't tell you as a small business owner, the $160,000 extra he cost the company over nine months really added value. Um, Would I make the same decision today? Yes. You know, my CFO that I work with now, would he be mad at me? Yes. (laughs) But, you know, I, I say that I'm completely oblivious to emotion, but, you know, I look at it as just like being a leader in the army is I'm affecting people's lives 24 seven, even, you know, it's not like we're an officer. So you can call me when you get your DUI or whatever on a Saturday, but you know, if I terminate somebody, I'm affecting their lives, their children. um, And that's not lost on me, but you know, the 180 flip to that is when we're creating jobs, I'm, I'm just so excited because you're you're changing somebody's life. You're giving them a job. Mm -hmm. They're working hard. You're paying them well, um, and they're able to take care of their family. And that, to me, is so motivating that you know uh, I'm greedy because I want more people to work on my team because mm-hmm. I know we're gonna I know we're gonna take good care of them. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, that that was one example. Another example was uh, you know I've had to terminate people who um, I would say of the different organizations, either their leadership let them let them down. Their leadership told them wrong. Their leadership allowed them to do things. And then financially, the company just has to make a decision. And I've executed terminations and things that maybe I didn't always agree with um, because it was a a leadership failure. But, you know, even if the employee is a bad employee, even if you don't personally like them, you're 
you're still affecting somebody's life. And and I, yeah. that, you know, I, I, I try my best to come across as strong and disciplined, but it tears my stomach up because that's just, it's just hard to do. No matter, no matter what the situation is, you're, you're changing somebody's life and that's not lost on me in mm-hmm. any way, shape or form. Um, I'm curious if you have ever worked with a coach or anyone to support you, like as you make these tough decisions, I think in a position like yours, it's, I would assume it's, it's lonely a lot of times and you have to make it, you know, it's a heavy weight to carry these burdens. So do you, do you work with a coach or, or have a business mentor to, to talk you through this stuff? I don't use a coach. I have several mentors. Um, and literally okay. I mean this, um, I am, I am a typical American. I look what others have done that's made them successful. And then I try to steal it. I mean, I, I go, Katie, what are you doing in that one thing that made you successful? And let's, you know, let's have lunch and let's talk about it. And then I'm going, all right, I'm going to start doing what she does in that situation because she's been successful. And I mean, I, I have several mentors who have come before me. And, you know, the thing about mentors is, is that let's, so I'm 37 and let's say that my mentor is 65, whatever, you know, they're giving you the information that they have from a generation where they were making decisions, right? So, you know, the one thing I always try to tell people is I'm, I always, you know, listen to the mentorship and advice people give me, but at the same time, you have to understand from their point of view where they're giving advice from, mm-hmm. you know? So if, if somebody's a baby boomer or some whatever, I don't even know what generations are, but if somebody's giving you advice from their experience, they still don't know the intricacies of your business probably. So mm-hmm. you still have to make that decision and own it. And I think one of the things to me, you ask about mentorship and, and, and advice. I'll, I, I've never made a decision in a silo, but when I make the decision, I will own it. And for me, when I came back to acquire my business and I was looking for businesses to acquire and evaluate, I see more risk in not owning the decision. So if I'm giving you advice and you're the owner and you're doing your thing, um, you know, you have to own it. I've worked in organizations where the, even the leader's like, well, you know, you told me to do this and I'm going, no, you know, you know, Katie, you're going to give me the advice that you feel is right. But if I'm the owner and leader, I still have to own the decision. I mean, no matter what. So yep. I view I view risk in not owning the decision, and um, which is why I, you know, I, I I like I like being in charge, and I like owning it so that I can I can make the decision. If we fall flat mm-hmm. on our face, I'll go, yep, that was on me. And <laughs> if we're if we're successful, I go, well, you guys gave me the advice, and I tried to follow your advice. So yeah. So so you uh, just to bring it back, I, I guess I did a bad job of uh, introducing the chain of events here, but you started a company. It was acquired by. Ignite, and then you have recently gone back and purchased that again. So you're now running Ignite again. Yes, I am. Yeah. In addition to this uh, distillery, so how how does that work? Running two businesses at the same time, and would you recommend it? <laughs> Loaded uh, question. <laughs> uh, sure, I recommend it. <laughs> um, you know, I'm very hands off with the distillery um, from day okay. one. The, from day one, the business plan I was a support function of marketing, sales, branding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm the idea guy that I made all the bottles, the logos, the website, I made all of that. Um, it's my dad's job to really run the day in and day out with my sister of the bottling. So that was our business strategy from the beginning. Um, okay. I make sales calls. I'll take time off of work to go somewhere to 
support them in, um, you know, proving how good the product is or what, you know, depending on the different state. Uh, so I make time for it, but I would say it's 5% of my time uh, with okay. my dad, my wife. Um, Ignite is a hundred thousand percent of my time. Um, yeah. You know, federal, federal, federal contracting is something, you know, I hate to say I'm a dirty contractor, but I am. And I love it because we get to support the warfighter. And I never thought uh, with my geography, geography degree from West Point that we would have 40 employees supporting payload operations and logistics for the International Space Station with Boeing. I, I never, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away by our employees and I get extremely motivated to resell and try to create new jobs in their, mm-hmm. te- their technical field. Um, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I talk to employees, they tell me what they do and I'm going, okay, cool. I mean, it's a little <laughs> over my head, but um, I, I was raised by a nerdy chemist engineer. So I kind of understand some of the things. Um, and I, I mean, I have a systems engineering background too, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, um, you know, ignite is my passion as well to support the warfighter and, and, and the nation, um, and creating jobs. So it's what I recommend it. Um, it, it depends on, on, um, I guess your intestinal fortitude and your ability to handle, uh, multiple things. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that has helped me, and I know this sounds like a complete meathead, but I, I go to the gym almost every day, six out of seven days, probably for an hour. And people know my family, um, my, my coworkers, they know they can call me at any time and I'll answer. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I need my hour to decompress <laughs> because if not, um, I will get, I'll get spun up. Uh, and yeah. I don't I don't want to say testy or nasty, but you know, yeah, you gotta, you have to, you have to make time for yourself. I live and die by my calendar. I'm very structured, um, but I'm also very flexible um, at the same time. So it's really, I would say, if if you're gonna juggle numerous balls, make sure that you that you also go. Okay, this is my time to do yoga or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Because you have to have your own personal time, and I think a lot of business owners fail at that, and they get strung out. You know, yes. they won't. They won't take vacation. Um, they're terrified that yeah. this, and I that that's unhealthy. You can't. You just can't live that way because, you know, it's it's just not possible. You got to take a break. Right. Right. Eventually, you'll burn out. Yeah, I think one of the biggest uh, lessons I've learned in the last year is how to appropriately prioritize and manage my time. And it's still a work in progress, but sitting down every morning, I sit down every morning for 15 minutes and I say, what are the goals I'm trying to accomplish this quarter? That's, that's how I approach it. And then yep. what are the things I'm doing today to move those goals forward? And everything I'm doing should be tied to the goals I'm trying to achieve. And then, like you said, carving out some time for yourself. I see a lot yep. of people who just don't take breaks. Like there's nothing sexy about burning the candle at both ends. Like it's only going to last so long. You're going to burn out and probably ruin some of your relationships. As no, well. I, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, I, I, when I ran my own small business and actually my vice president was a retired Marine 06. Um, and he said, you know, I was telling him one time, I said, so my wife was the CFO of our small business. Really. She was doing payroll and, and some finance 401k stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'd work from eight until five or whatever. And I'd go home and she'd hammer me with financial questions and, and I'm daddy at the same time. And I, I had no break. There was no break. And yeah. I was telling man, I said, I, he said, well, what did you used to do that, 
you were really into? And I said, well, I was a, I was a weightlifter. I like just, you know, taking some time. And he was like, you have to do it. He goes, yeah. he goes, I still run a couple of miles every morning at four 30. And, uh, <laughs> made me feel bad. Cause he was like in his late fifties. And I'm like, Ugh, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> but, but he was super, he was a super fit guy and he just seemed to deal with stress or whatever it was. I said, okay. So I started making time for myself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's really helped me out, you know, just to find that time, because like you said, you'll ruin relationships professionally. Mm-hmm. You will ruin your personal relationships yeah. if, if you're burning that side. Too. Yeah. So. Why, why do you think there's such an emphasis on this burnout, like crazy 20 hour a day, like that sex? Why, why is that? You mean like what, how people don't get it or like, uh, why, why did, why do people think that that equals success? Like, I think that's prize. Like, oh my gosh, I, I, I got up at 5am. I've been working till 10. Like, I haven't left my chair. What, what, how did that become the gold standard? I think that's like the 1980s. uh, Like I was reading an article about that generation where, oh, I worked 80 hours this week. Okay. Well, did you have 80 hours of output? I don't, (laughs) I don't, you know what I'm saying? And so, so, and I'll use an example. I know people that talk about, oh, I, I'm doing business development and I'm doing sales. And in our industry, you literally cannot do it outside of the windows, probably of breakfast to like four. Okay. So when people like, Oh, I was doing this after hours and I'm going, well, maybe you had a drink a couple of times, but if you're really trying to understand the customer pain points, there's literally so much time in a day Mm -hmm. where you're really adding value and, and talking to the government or whatever. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I think people just like to, you know, here's the thing. People are always going to tell you they're underpaid. I hate to say that, but it's, it, they're always going to tell you they're underpaid, which which probably some truth to that. And then number two, they're overworked. And, you know, I think people get overworked because their leadership doesn't strategically plan properly. So I hate yeah. the term putting out fires. And I had a client years ago who kept telling me, oh, we can't strategically plan because we're putting out fires. And finally, I was so tired of listening to him. I said, no. You're putting out fires because you don't strategically plan. You do not set aside time. So like you were talking about, what's goal A to get to C? And how do I connect the dots? You just wake up and go, oh, shit, there's stuff to do today. And that's not, that's never, very rarely are you going to be successful doing that. So I think it's pure pride and people just want to tell you how hard they're working. And I think, you know, my, my success or the way I'm judging success is, what was the output? Did you create new jobs? Did you sell more units? Mm-hmm. And that's that's data. If you tell me you worked 80 hours, oh, you're still not making any money and you're still not creating yeah. jobs. So <laughs> I, I think that is, that's the biggest takeaway. What is the output and the value as opposed to hours work? It's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, I worked 12 hours today. It's harder to say I made this many sales and like maybe it doesn't happen. So people just lean on how much time they spent. But I, I think tracking the output and, and the value you're creating is much more important than the time, the time yeah. that you put in. Um, well, listen, this has been a, a great conversation. I'm, I'm very inspired by all the stuff that you've accomplished. And I'm sure that people listening will find some good nuggets in there. Um, can you, uh, before we jump, do you have like one or two pieces of advice you'd share with somebody who is starting a business or considering starting a business? Well, um, I guess my my biggest advice to anybody who's starting a business is if you don't believe in yourself and you can't jump in head first, nobody's going to believe in you. Um, you know, you asked me, I came to a point when I just said, I'm doing this. 
and get out of my way. Um, you know, when I applied to West Point years ago, it was the only school I applied to. <laughs> and that's not good advice. Um, <laughs> and I actually, I got turned down because I have shoulder surgery to screw my shoulder. But I worked hard to get a medical waiver and got it. And I, I don't know if that was always a part of me or if I know I got stronger after losing my leg and, and dealing with combat and things like that. I, I got better, right? I believe in po- post-traumatic growth, right? I think uh, that was General uh, the Marine. I'm, I'm missing the name right now. But, but I think most importantly is, um, you know, just dive into it. If, if, if you can't sell it to your family or your boyfriend, your customers won't buy it. And you mm-hmm. got to believe in it 100%. You got to go all out and sell it. Um, and then the other piece of advice on that is, you know, um, you know, take a risk, you know, never quit. I, I know those are so such cheesy things, but literally you can't mitigate all risks. There's always going to be inherent risk. Can you stomach that risk? And when you hit a speed bump, are you going to go, oh my God, this happened and I can't overcome it? Or are you going to go, which is what I tell my team all the time identify the problem and then find a solution. You want to bitch about it? Don't talk to me. I'm not talking to you about what the problem is. Identify it. Let's find a solution. Let's drive on. And, you know, I go back to combat mission where we, we, the S3 messed up a pickup of a Black Hawk and I had a squad stuck randomly somewhere. My platoon sergeant was coming over yelling and, oh, this guy's an idiot. And I just said, Sergeant, Sergeant B, find our guys and then we'll bitch about it later, but solve the problem. And then I, he got mad at me for it. And I said, listen, talking about how this guy made a mess up doesn't help us find our guys that are in the middle of Iraq. And I guarantee you that once you identify the problem and find a solution, you won't even have time to bitch about it because you'll find new problems and then you'll just start solving problems. And it just becomes instinctive with the entire team. And so that's, I guess that's my two biggest pieces of advice is, you know, just, just, just give it a try. And, uh, I would rather go down swinging than than not even step into the ring. And that's, that's just me though. Well, that's, um, a great place to end that. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Super. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Bye. And that's our show for today. For the show notes and a list of resources mentioned during this podcast, head over to veteranownedcollective.com backslash podcast. And if you're a veteran business owner or a supporter of veteran business owners, please make sure to check us out at veteranownedcollective.com.